0: Beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world, and now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. In South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's installment of Beyond Governance here at 101.9. Hi, FM. My name is Nimrat Ambele. Uh, as South Africans, we continue to celebrate women's uh, who have changed the course of history um, in line with the national constitution on issues such as redressing and gender equity. Meanwhile, according to the World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Report, South African women are paid between 23 and 35 percent less than men doing the same job. While states' SA estimates the country's gender wage gap is at 30 percent across the board, that 's not enough, we have raging unemployment rate, which is sitting around forty percent, which makes South Africa the most unequal society in the world. Several variables which account for such depressing and largely dehumanizing economic environment, which proportionately affect most of the country 's population as an entrepreneur. You know, our salvation can 't be entrusted with politicians. we need to strive to make our lives slightly bit more better by collaborating, fostering economic growth in our own spaces. If you missed our previous show, not to worry, simply visit our website, which is ww.hifm.com and select your favorite podcasts and share with us. In our last encounter, I had the privilege of interviewing music icon, Sipo Hosik Mabuse, regarding the legacy project he is working on to celebrate, yet another music icon, by the name of Bapsi Mlangeni. Sipo is an icon. He's a global icon. And the man with so many accolades, literally coming through his pores, and yet he is so humble. I implore you to listen to that particular podcast and share your views with us. Our SMS line, which is 34519. As always, I'm not alone. I'm flanked by two extraordinary producers by the name of Vusi, Masinga, and Harry Seleke. Gentlemen, I'm eternally grateful for your technical argument, which makes a world of difference to the ear of the beloved listener. Typically on this show, I often reflect on topical and sometimes controversial issues, which influence our body politic in the most profound manner. The case in point on this glorious uh, day is the letter penned by Dr. Ellen Muzarika to Popomolefe regarding the 40th celebration of the UDF um, 20th um, on the 20th of August. In his view, South Africa has been ruled by a gang of robbers. Clearly taking a swap at the current leadership of the country. In that letter, Ellen Boussac went to argue that across the country, there was virtually no disagreement on what South Africans were facing right now as a result of government, governmental mismanagement over 30 years. That sometimes needed to be done, that something needed to be done urgently and that South Africans needed to unite and inspire toward action. What stood out for me was actually suggestion that the posture of the current sitting president lacked intellectual honesty as his economical with, with the truth. To illustrate this point, I'm quoting the following. I quote, I was already disturbed when Mr. Ramaphosa blandly began to speak of nine wasted years on Zuma, when in fact he was right there as a deputy president and as a chairperson of the Department Committee to say nothing of of his role vis-à-vis the oversight of the state enterprises. He further went on to say that the refusal to take any responsibility at all, while the ANC is obsessed with collective decision-making, when it suits them, it is a political conscious pillet, washing-of-hands attitude that has now become disgracefully ingrained in ANC. It is a prime example of pseudo-innocence he spoke about back in 1976. As I proceed, if we further point on um, that particular letter, it means that the, the once mighty ANC is the fig leaf of political deception of moral recklessness that is opening doors for impunity that has destroyed people's lives in hard-end democratic dispensation ranging from parliament to court. And if I conclude by saying no one of his, referring to the president, he's done where the sun never rose. I found the content of this letter quite intriguing and suffering in so many ways, as he comes across as yearning for restoration of public trust, which in his view has been eroded. In summary, he calls for unity amongst our Africans uh, to be inspired towards action. In a nutshell, he speaks about intellectual dishonesty, about those who have been entrusted to uphold the Constitution and government instruments such as the state-owned entities which has been used by cash cards to benefit those that are linked to factions or those that use it as their own private property, if you, if you like. I suppose the bigger question is how quick can we arrest the beginning of cryptographic tendencies which have become a norm has it become a norm? That's another question. The word implication is tenancies has somehow legitimized throttling of transformation ideals, such as equity and inclusivity. If this is not the case, one might argue, how do we explain the lack of corporate transformation? How do we explain employment equity reports that remains unchanged? When you look at the stats, year in, year out, the needle has not moved in terms of inclusivity which, in my view, these were, you know, social instruments which were meant to bring about transformation, you know, which does suggest that, you know, transformation is a business imperative, not just only moral imperative, but also a business imperative and not a political gimmick. We need to go beyond the black-owned companies listed in the Johannesburg Exchange, which is now suddenly, the ownership which is suddenly sitting around 23%, which has improved over a period of time. But certainly not enough. In my view, the broad-based empowerment remains the biggest challenge facing the countries as small businesses are obviously at the forefront of delivering us from this uh, mayhem, if you like. However, the biggest challenge is the financial development agencies or institutions uses the private sector funding templates and hence the problem of inequality lingers, you know, today. The performance of the state funding institution, in my view, such as the IDC, The South African Development Bank, the Land Bank, and the National Empowerment Fund, as an example, should go beyond, should go beyond the approaches which is used by the private sector, particularly on the returns of investments, simply because they too use the private sector money, such as old mutual and commercial banks. I'm sure if you're using somebody's money, they are interested in the returns. And development and returns don't necessarily always go side by side. Anyway, those are my views on this particular issue Born from the letter that was penned down by Alan Busap Popo Moneva.
0: Having said that, let's take a quick break We'll come back in a second Beyond Governance Making sense of doing business in South Africa Is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research The science of decision making We've weathered the unexpected We've stepped into a new world now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. in South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.
1: This is Bjorn uh, My name is Nimro Kimberle. I'm now joined by Professor Mary Metcalf, who is a former MEC for Education and currently the director of Pillar. Conversation comes at the backdrop of a seminar she chaired uh, under the theme, Austerity Without Consolidation, Fiscal Policy and Spending Choices Budget in 2023. Prof, happy Women's Day and welcome to Beyond Governance.
2: Thank you very much, Nimrod. I'm glad to be here with you.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Prof. We're living in tough times, um, and I suppose perhaps maybe, you know, setting the scene, one could look at government debt to GDP, which is probably sitting around 68 to 69%, and which is quite high by global standards. As if that's not enough, the economic growth is stagnant. We are sitting at average about 0.1%, which um, is mainly due to power cuts, amongst other variables. We do know that for economy to grow, to absorb, I mean, we need to grow at least by 3% to absorb new entrants into the labor market, and we're not, which means more and more youth that graduate from our TVED colleges, those graduate from our universities, will not be able to be absorbed by the labor market purely because the economy is not growing as it should and that leaves a whole lot of ramification that would are uh, subject of our conversation today. So take us through the thinking prof of the, that particular seminar on, on a strategy without consultation.
2: So thank you, Nimrod. Let me just contextualize the seminar So the seminar was convened In my capacity as a Commissioner of the National Planning Commission And the National Planning Commission is very Concerned about Some of the greatest challenges That we are facing as a country Which focus on unemployment Poverty and inequality So the National Planning Commission Is about to publish A 10 year review Which looks at precisely Those issues. The economy has not performed as expected between in the last 10 years. Growth has been low. The per capita GDP growth has been negative. So, in fact, South Africans are becoming poorer. Unemployment has increased and we have a highly unequal society. Now, the approach of the National Planning Commission to the work of looking at education and training, which you will remember from the publication of the National Development Plan, prioritized education as one of the key impediments to addressing a poverty and reducing inequality. We have to address the quality of education if we are going to have address unemployment and poverty so the ND npc um, has decided to approach the challenges in education in a way that focuses on the 5 years that we have between 2024 25 in government planning terms and the 5 years that take us to 2030 and in looking at education the issue of the fiscal constraints become absolutely key. What we're going to be doing as the NDP, and we're already deep in this process, is we want to identify key areas in education and training. That means all the way from ECD through basic education, all the way into post-school education and training, which includes colleges, universities, the skills sector, And colleges, remember, include both the TVETs, which you've referred to, as well as the community colleges. And we want to look at the entire education and training sector, not just from the perspective of what have we achieved since the National Development Plan was adopted by Cabinet in 2011, But we're looking at identifying key priority areas within education and training that must be addressed because they are impeding progress in the overall implementation of NDP. So looking at how we identify those areas for accelerated action in the next five years, there's three key criteria. The first is we have to maximize system efficiency because we have the reality of the resource-constrained environment. And that's why the seminar was so important. If we're going to improve efficiency in a resource-constrained environment, that has to do with improving quality. And improving quality will improve efficiency Improving quality and efficiency, we believe, will begin to address um, inequality. That's the background of this paper. Now, originally, the seminar was conceptualized as an internal process for all of the people working on the diagnostics in these key areas. But Michael Sachs's paper is really, really important. I was pleased that you were able to um, attend the seminar. But if you look at the overall structure of his paper, he starts where you start, looking at the spending um, slowdown, looking at the changing um, macrofiscal conditions, and makes it very clear that we have challenges um, going forward in terms of The what some people would call austerity, the spending cutbacks, all of that is based in the challenge of our low economic growth. And the NPC has to focus on improving economic performance, our economic growth as a basis of addressing the triple challenges of poverty, unemployment and inequality. Now, taking that as a given, and, as a broader debate, what we hope to achieve in this seminar, and I think that we did i'd love to get your views is to just look at what does it mean for what we do in education. What was very interesting for me was michael sachs's and it's it's not only Michael Sachs but it's the whole um, inequality studies unit and he wrote this with a team of people, is he looks at the gap between policy development, policy formulations, new policies, and the alignment of that policy with the fiscal program within which governments must operate. So we have expansive policies within a restrictive Fiscal environment. And that means for me that as the National Planning Commission does the work of looking at what are the key areas where we need to accelerate progress towards achieving the goals of NDP 2030, we have to do what Michael suggests, which is grapple with program design. What kind of institutional reforms will ease rather than exacerbate these fiscal constraints. What do we need to do that will promote greater efficiency and effectiveness in the key areas that will promote equality, inclusion, and quality as a fundamental output in education? I think that gives you a sense and the listeners a sense of what it is that we are trying to achieve in the seminar.
1: Thank you very much for that insight, Prof, which is quite useful in, in framing uh, our, our conversation. And I'm, I'm sure it's beginning to illuminate the context of um, our conversation on this
0: glorious morning. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making. We've weathered the Unexpected. We've stepped into a new world, and now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.
1: Welcome back. You've just joined us. You haven't really messed up. I'm joined by Professor Mary Midcoff, um, mm-hmm. who is the convener of the, the NPC National uh, Proposal Plan, on which focuses on economic growth. Uh, before we go into that break, Mary was giving us the broader context of the seminar which she was chairing under the theme fiscal policy and spending choices. Um, obviously, we've set the scene around that particular issue. What is key in terms of her position is that they had to look at key priority areas um, in the NDP and how the NPC can actually activate those particular strategic levers, if you like. I mean, they're looking at issues of early childhood development all the way to colleges, which include community colleges and universities by uh, trying to identify key challenges which would enable uh, the system to operate efficiently. One of the criteria she mentioned is that of system efficiency and quality. And she went on to maybe just to contextualize the NPC role via the paper, which has been written by Michael Sachs and others on the macro body politic in terms of how do we align or how do we grapple with program design in the context of physical environment. Having said that, Prof, as we proceed, and I... I was quite privileged to have attended that particular seminar which brought so many issues clear and I wouldn't be you I wouldn't be I, I, in fact I'm not envious being you because there are a lot of issues that you have to grapple with but and I suppose it comes with the job has not it and in the main what personally what would be key for the listener having given us that frame of thinking around the paper by Michael there's obviously you've you've articulated the gaps in policy development in the context of physical environment. Could you just give us an example of those inefficiencies that you've picked up or that you're beginning to grapple with, which would have a ripple effect uh, in an event that you get them correct?
2: I would love to do that So let's look at um, I'll give you three examples Or four examples Across the spread of education and training Which by the way is chapter 9 Of the National Development Plan If anybody wants to go back To the National Development Plan Which is online And see what the NDP Adopted by Cabinet in 2011 Said we should be doing In education and training I'm going to start with early childhood Development. We need to invest more resources in ensuring that young children have adequate nutrition, that they have adequate social support to promote their development, and that they're healthy. Because that increased investment in early childhood development. Has And it's well documented internationally, and people know it in their individual experiences as well as in, in large-scale research. If young children do not receive immunization, if they don't get access to food, if they're stunted, if they're affected by problems um, during uh, pregnancy, such as um, alcohol, alcoholism, that has a huge subsequent impact on the support that needs to be provided in the budgets of social development and health and education. So the investment in early childhood development is an example of how we can increase the efficacy, how we can reduce inequality, how we can in the long term reduce spending by having more appropriate investment. It becomes more efficient. An example from um, basic education is reading. If we don't invest and provide adequate teacher support for teachers in those early years of establishing reading, which I'll I'll, I'll use for grade R to grade 3, and and further, but those fundamental early three or four or five years, if children don't learn to read in that time, the result is massive inefficiency because children are not able to benefit from the opportunities provided in education if they can't read the texts, if they're struggling to make sense of the language. If we were to improve early literacy, early numeracy, it would have the consequence of reducing inefficiencies of failure, of dropout, of children repeating grades, of children becoming disheartened and disillusioned, and we would ease the burden on teachers. If we look at the example of post-school education and training, we need, we're still exploring the diagnostics of this and consulting with stakeholders and the departments, but there are very high levels of repetition and dropout in our colleges and in our universities. If we improved quality, if we focused on appropriate support, would that have an impact on quality, therefore on efficiency, and therefore in terms of where, where the money is being invested? The whole of the post-school sector has within it many inefficiencies, all of those need to be reviewed. Now, this needs to happen so that we can develop a pro- pro- program of action that all stakeholders come behind and say, these are the key areas that we can together act on despite the challenges of the economic context to do, let's say, more with less. Now, that is only going to succeed if we all agree that this needs to be done and have focused action on pursuing our development goals of addressing poverty, inequality, unemployment, and using education as a key lever with the resources that we have to address inefficiencies that are slowing us down.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for that, um, very clear example that you provided, Prof. I do understand the chapter nine of NDP, which specifically deals with, with education improvement, improvement ethos, if you like. And I'm glad that you've raised within, in the ecosystem of edu- education sector from early childhood development to postgraduate. And there are a lot of inefficiencies. I mean, you're quite correct by, uh, you know, pointing to us. With numerous of studies have in alluded to the fact that, um, our children, there are a lot of inefficiencies in the system and those inefficiencies does cost the fiscus even more if, if you can't address them or arrest them at an earlier phase. The early childhood development, we do know that we are now dealing with the function shift from the Department of Social Development and to the basic education. Could you just maybe take us through part, you know, in terms of what sort of where are we in the in the functionship and extent to which we are likely to systematize the integration of the functionship into the basic education so that some of the issues around investment of resources are properly aligned and we are beginning to build a strong foundation. That would ensure that early child, you know, environment, which is very complex and highly competitive when you look at the numbers. Where are we in the function shift as an example?
2: Thank you for that question, Nimrod. I think the first thing that is important to stress is that when we're talking about a function shift, that can mislead all of us, into thinking the responsibility for ECD has moved lock, stock and barrel to the Department of Education. That is not correct. And let me explain why. Is Early childhood development is generally understood as a period that starts from before birth, from conception, all the way to, let's say, the age of 10. But for the purposes of our, our context, I'll talk about the age of seven, six or seven. So one way of looking at that period of early childhood development is to break it into three periods. And of course, nothing's ever as neat as that. But conception to two years old, the first 1000 days is absolutely critical and The fundamental role of an education department there is the Department of Social Development, the Department of Health. Their roles are absolutely critical in having strong support for development of children in the first 1,000 days. So health continues to have a very strong role there, but not on its own because obviously there's issues such as water and sanitation and child protection that also intersect. And I'm going to come back to these intersections. If you look at the second period, let's say roughly between the ages of three to five years old, this is before children enter formal schooling at grade R, and I'm going to talk about grade R, but it is where children Socially and developmentally begin to move into opportunities for interacting and learning, often in small groups in the community. You can call it creche, you can call it, um, childcare, you can talk about early learning programs, but socially children need then to move outside of the home and begin to interact with a broader social group and the learning components of that are crucial now that has historically been located within the department of social development social development still has a critical role to play but the dbe in terms of the function shift is now responsible for a registration subsidies etc and that has come with many challenges which i'll come back to We then go into the next period where children enter much more formal institutions of school. And as you'd probably be aware, the Basic Education Laws Amendment Act has lowered the age of compulsory schooling and it's still passing through. It's still a bill, still going through Parliament But whereas the previous legislation provided for children to for compulsory school attendance from the year in which children turn seven, so they could be six or seven becoming seven, it now says children have to be in school by the age in by the year in which they turn six. Which means that that would be grade R, children of 5 to 6. So the function shift is not saying all responsibility from conception to 10 years moves to the DBE. It still is the responsibility of the key departments of health, of social development. And by the way, there's a range of other departments involved in the support infrastructure. So the function shift is complex. It isn't only on the shoulders of DBE, but it does give DBE immense new responsibilities. And when I say DBE, you know, the DBE is a policy um, department, It um, has responsibility for um, providing policy on norms and standards so that we have a, a common approach in the country. But the operationalization and the resources to implement that policy are at provincial level. Now, provinces have huge new responsibilities in terms of liaising across these government departments and additionally because so much of the early childhood development responsibility is located at uh, municipal level, at district level in the municipalities. It is putting a new responsibility on provincial education departments to form new relationships across departments in a stronger way than they've ever had to before. So this is a big and a complex new responsibility, which, There are views which I support should be led by the presidency and there is consideration being given, which I'm I'm hoping that the NPC will consider and strongly support, that the establishment of an office for children, for the rights of children in the presidency, could help coordinate this complex set of activities and actions across departments.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much for that insight which is quite illuminating. One begins to understand, I'm sure the listeners begin to comprehend the complex nature of the function shift of early childhood development from the Department of Social Development to the Department of Basic Education. You're going to take a last Break and come back as we wrap up um, on this very really fascinating work which Mary is doing with the rest of the
0: um, other colleagues. Beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making. We've weathered the unexpected, we've stepped into a new world, and now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. in South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.
1: Welcome back. Uh, this is Beyond Governance. My name is Nirmala Thumbel. I am joined by Mary um, in a capacity as the chair of an NPC that is looking at how to implement, how to successfully review and implement.
2: I know I probably didn't have an opportunity to brief you um, properly about the structure of the NPC, and I'm just Mm going to quickly do that in case anyone goes away from the interview with the wrong conception of my role. So the National Planning Commission is um, appointed by the President. The Chair of the National Planning Commission is uh, Minister Marupin Ramahoppa, who is the Minister for Planning in the, in, in the Office of the President. The Deputy Chair is Professor Taniko Maluleka, who is also the Vice Chancellor of TUT. Then there's another 26 commissioners. We all work collaboratively So it's a huge learning experience for me because I need to understand all of the areas. My role... Is, is simply to do the legwork around issues of chapter nine, which is education and training. So I'm thoroughly enjoying that. But all of this thinking and the seminars and the, the work that's being written goes into the NPC as a whole for them to consider. And then the NPC as a whole will make recommendations to the cabinet to the president So I, I hope that helps clarify
1: Thank you very much for the clarity Which is quite useful Because we might just obviously mis- misconstrue the whole point mm. The last point that I wanted to Personally be ask your insight on Mary Is the, the inefficiencies In the post-schooling environment Which I think the NPC And the work that you're doing On the education chapter Is obviously shining a spotlight on I mean you've made reference To the high of Uh, in the post-schooling environment and now that we are facing enormous fiscal pressure, how do we, because when you look at the funding of Tibet colleges vis-a-vis the universities, there's huge disjuncture. What is your assessment, preliminary assessment of where the resources ought to go? Because if we were to compete with the lives of South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Japan, we need to be focusing our energies on the Tibet colleges. And in this country, we are still predominantly looking at universities and when you look at the unemployment stats university side of things, uh, we, we, we can obviously change those kinds of inefficiencies by look at the funding model for Tivet colleges. Your take mm-hmm. on that.
2: It's such an important question and I'm, and I'm thanking you for actually putting your finger on it because the challenges in the post school sector are integrally related with labor market dynamics and perceptions of the value of qualifications in relation to future employment, I have a strong okay so so let me say where are we with the understanding of this? Well all of the areas that we've identified, and I think there's about eighteen areas that we've identified. We are busy developing the diagnostics. What is the problem on the basis of the diagnostics, which is going to be done. In a close working relationship with stakeholders, hence the, the seminar that you attended, we need to be able to say these are the problems. And once we've got a common understanding of the problems, we are then going to be developing the strategies that would be recommended to the next term of government. So the new cabinet would, would get the diagnostic and the set of strategies. So let's come back to what is the diagnosis so the diagnosis is in the process of being developed. We want to publish that in about November for every sector p ecd basic education in an integrated whole so now let's get back to where are we with this so when I say i'm 'm concerned about the structure of the whole post school education and training system and it's it's Imagination in the public is that people perceive that the necessity of having a degree to get employment must dominate above everything. And often families feel a sense of despair if their child doesn't do well enough to get access into higher education. And an even worse sense of despair if their child doesn't succeed because they would have invested so much. And that's because it's seen as the only route to employment. And the evidence is clear that, in fact, you do have a greater chance of employment if you do have a degree. What we need to do is to strengthen the technical components of what are the technical and vocational education colleges so that it is seen as a valid and valuable pathway to personal empowerment and contributing to society. At the moment, the TVED colleges are, do not enjoy that parity of esteem. They do not um, necessarily result in higher opportunities for employment, which also has to do with the necessity of economic growth and to have a um, labor-absorbing economy. But we have to strengthen the equality of what our TVED colleges are achieving. And there are real challenges In our in our in our TVET colleges, Um, some of the diagnostics so far are that there's real difficulties in linking to industry in terms of making sure that the curriculum and the learning experience is up to date with the technology. There's real challenges in terms of placement of learners for work-integrated learning, which would then um, transition to to employment. Quality of teaching and student support is very weak. And so we are not expanding the college sector, the TVET sector, so that it becomes the strong base providing the skills that the economy needs. And that has to be addressed within the framework of funding. And community colleges, by the way, receive even less in terms of resources. And I think that what we're going to be looking at as part of the diagnostic is how the community colleges can be used to really improve reach, particularly to youth that are not in education and not in employment and not in training. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge amount of work to be done in the post-school sector. Thanks, Nabrata.
1: Thank you very much for that insight, which I think is quite critical in the work that you are doing as part of diagnostic. As you've said, the report will be issued, I suppose, um, by November. The public will be able to see the kinds of, you know, integration that um, you, you, the Chapter 9 work that you are currently coordinating that will feed into the broader framing of the strategy in terms of how best to support, how the country can best support education sector as a whole. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave it here, Mary. It has been absolutely beautiful getting a sense of the complex nature of the work that you are managing or that work that you are coordinating to fit into the broader, you know, strategy of the country on how best to be more competitive. And and I could imagine mm-hmm. if, if we were to really streamline, you know, issues of Tibet as one variable, mm. the two biggest issues, ECD and Tibet colleges. Um, if we were to sort out those two big variables, um, we would definitely take this country forward. And biggest concern personally is that we often have a big shopping list, typically in government a big big shopping list, and every item um has is a cost drive on its own and it's impossible to gravitate towards quality when you want to touch everything, you know? My view I'm sure is that the NPC or the the commission that you are coordinating the work on would able to prioritize and key levers that would enable the, say, for an example, the ECD as, as an, ECD as well as the Tibet colleges as the most, um, critical layers that could strengthen the quality and efficiencies that we're seeing. I mean, for an example, your, and I would imagine that, that the unions are behind it, which, which I think is quite great and useful. We need to move away from microwaving our grade 12 learners I and mean, the amount of resources. I'm sure someone have done some studies on the amount of money spent at grade 12, which we need to be conversely be spent somewhere to really build a strong foundation so that we're not addressing those kind of inefficiencies that we're seeing in the system and moving away from the funding or possibly shifting the funding model of universities in favor of colleges so that we're able to produce the kind of technical men and women who are able to be more competitive in the context of the for example, the Africa Trade, uh, freedom, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, as well as uh, other international competitiveness—you know, with competing with Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, so forth. So those are some of the issues which ordinary South Africans need to see your work culminating into, so that we are able to become more competitive and we are able to at least move the GDP needle by three to four percent. Because in that way, we're able to absorb more and more uh, youth into employment environment. And we're able to cushion the, the country from a fiscal cliff, which we are sitting in now.
2: You know, Nimrod, I loved your use of the notion of a shopping list. Shopping list but live within our resources. Secondly, I want to say I, could, I enjoyed listening to you because you started off saying maybe there's two priorities and then you kept adding. All of the key priorities and key levers we're going to consolidate into a single diagnostic. And I just, before you close, want to mention um, you noticed, in fact, that the teacher unions were very active um, in the seminar they are amongst the key stakeholders that we will be working with very closely to make sure that we learn from the wisdom of people who are deeply involved in education. And in the end, the public will have an opportunity to comment on the diagnostic, and that will be November, December. And I look forward to perhaps talking to you then again.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much, Mary. Awesome indeed. We're going to have a little bit cheer because you've run out of time. That was Professor Mary Metcalf, who's a former MSC for Education, outing and currently Director of PILA. She's doing some amazing work in, in, in a, in a con- capacity as the Commissioner for the NPC, um, looking at education chapter of the National Development Plan. Let's leave it here until we meet again.
0: Shalom. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. In South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.